Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve. Welcome to Spy Talk. I'm Jean Meserve. Jeff Stein is off on medical leave. Jihadists and domestic right-wing extremists share a penchant for hatred and violence, but an upcoming book makes the case that they have much more in common. This is a movement whether it's the Al-Qaeda, whether it's ISIS, whether it's the far right, is born now on the internet, exists on the internet. The internet is their oxygen, it's their lifeline. And in order to fight it, you have to fight it on the internet. That was terrorism researcher Rita Katz, whose new book, Saints and Soldiers, will be out this fall. We'll hear much more from her later in the episode. But first, the FBI search of President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home unleashed the fury of his supporters. The rage online included threats against law enforcement, leading to arrests and even an attempted attack on an FBI office in Cleveland. Though there has been a wave of online vitriol over the past few years, Heidi Byrich, co-founder and chief strategist for the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, says what she is seeing this week is different. This was just an explosion. The minute that the um, fact that the search had happened hit the press, it was immediate just vitriol pouring out of every uh, sector of the online space. And in particular, you know, real anger towards federal law enforcement, the FBI being described as the Gestapo, calls for killing agents, those kinds of things. Is the language overall more violent than what you've seen before? It's extremely violent. So there have been calls to kill agents, bomb agents. Uh, Agents' names have been doxxed, some of the people who are involved in the search. There were calls to, um, at least in one case that I read, to hang the judge that served the search warrant. As a result, he had to remove identifying information from his court's website. Uh, Yeah, it's extremely violent. And then there's a whole lot more just, you know, civil war is coming, arm yourselves, be prepared. There are actually a whole series of TikTok videos showing people getting ready for, you know, quote unquote, civil war. A lot of those have come down since then. And yes, so it was extremely militant, all about war. And look, this wasn't just white supremacists and militia members. You know, Steve Bannon, the president's former advisor, went on Alex Jones' show the day after all of this was disclosed, and he talked about war and called the FBI a modern-day Gestapo. So this isn't just fringe groups. This is also part of the, the mainstream on the right. And obviously, it's led to some real physical action. I mean, you had this man in Ohio who attempted to enter an FBI office and so forth. That's right. The attack on the FBI office in Ohio, there was also an arrest made yesterday in uh, Pennsylvania for someone who was on gab and threatening to kill agents. And, you know, the FBI was so concerned that on Friday, I think along with the DHS, they put out a bulletin describing some of these threats, one of which included um, putting, you know, threatening to put a dirty bomb in front of FBI headquarters. So this is this is quite serious. And I'm guessing that this isn't the end of it spilling into real life. 
Why do you think this was such a trigger? Is it confirmation that to these people that the deep state really exists? Yeah, it's definitely about the deep state. Uh, This is rhetoric that's been going on, especially, I have to say, since January 6th. You know, there's been a lot of reaction among the far right to the arrests for people who entered the Capitol and engaged in violence and so on that has has basically painted the feds as being the demons here, not the people who stormed the Capitol. And that has been building and building and building. In fact, there was a very strange scene at the CPAC conference in Texas about a month ago where there was this art, performance art, that involved a jail cell and an actor who was in there playing the role of a victimized January 6th rioter. So the the, the anti-cop rhetoric, the anti-FBI rhetoric has actually been building longer than just this reaction to the, you know, seizing the documents at Mar-a-Lago, but that was the trigger. And, and, you know, Trump set it off immediately calling the United States a banana republic and implying that all federal officials are somehow corrupt, that this is a scam, that they might plant evidence, that this wasn't a legally justified seizure of materials from, from the estate. And some prominent Republicans have said the same. They have absolutely said the same. On that Alex Jones broadcast uh, the day after the raid, Bannon implied that what the FBI did, not only did he call him the Gestapo, but that they might try to assassinate Donald Trump. Roger Stone was on that broadcast saying similar things. And then there have been a whole host of elected officials who have decried the FBI for conducting this raid, that it's that it wasn't a lawful activity, that it was some sort of a deep state plot to destroy the president, you know, dirty his name, those kinds of things. And and as I said, up to and including some of these people saying they thought that he might be assassinated by federal law enforcement. You mentioned that on TikTok, there are videos of people getting prepared for some sort of uprising. Have you seen that before? Is that something new? I have not seen people be so willing to show the insides of their homes, their guns, their other weapons, and sort of their development of go bags in such a public way. And we're not talking about like one person, you know, who who did this. There were there were dozens of these videos of people showing how they're going to set up their go bag, talking about civil war. We have to protect the president. Let's get ready you know, the violence is coming. No, it was quite extraordinary because these people are actually easily identifiable and usually people want to hide in the shadows when they make these claims. So what does it say to you that people are willing to say these things online knowing that others are reading it and are willing to post these videos which make them absolutely identifiable? I think that there's literally a hysteria on the far right. I I don't think people are are thinking straight. And after four or five years now of conspiracy mongering of all kinds, lies about elections, lies about COVID, calls about the deep state, the spread of QAnon conspiracies, right? This idea that Democrats are child trafficking. All of this has led to such a furor and rage on the right that people aren't even, they're not really even thinking about what could happen to them when they post these things. You know, the other thing about it is people have gotten away with a lot of online vitriol and hatred over the years without having been held accountable because for a long time, people weren't really looking at white supremacists 
or militia, you know, anti-government types as a threat the way they are now and have come to see them in the last few years. So the environment is a little bit different and and maybe they're not realizing that. I, you know, the the bulletin from DHS and FBI on Friday was extraordinary because it specifically talked about the online environment and then documented various things that federal law enforcement was seeing. You know, that has been a rarity. We haven't seen such a direct description of what it is federal law enforcement is looking at in the online space. There's a lot of talk online about civil war. Are you any more worried now about that prospect than you have been in the past? Yeah, I'm I'm extremely worried about what that talk means in terms of our society and what it's doing to large numbers of Americans. So for example, the University of Chicago has done research saying that there are about 21 million, as they describe it, insurrectionists in the United States. These are people who believe the election was stolen, share ideas like belief in the white supremacist great replacement theory, QAnon, and and are willing to engage in violence, or at least saying that they're willing to engage in violence to quote unquote protect the, the society or culture that they think is is disappearing. Those are really high numbers. The number of Americans willing to um, use violence for political means is higher than it's ever been, according to to multiple polls. That's a, a very worrying situation. And this idea that has taken hold on the right, that our democratic system is rigged and therefore, you know, various actions have to be taken basically so that it's easier to flip elections by partisan decision making in various states. You know, we have dozens and dozens of people running for office who want to put in place things that would make elections inherently political or want to be able to certify results to to whatever result they want to have. These are all threats that I haven't seen before. And and this is a volatile situation. What happens if elections don't go the way these people who are arming themselves and talking all this talk what if it doesn't go their way and they don't get what they want? What are they going to do? Uh, are there is there going to be rage around the polls in the midterms? You know, people tend to forget that in 2018, there were four terrorist attacks around those midterm elections, including the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh, which was the, the worst of it. Um, is that going to happen? Um, you know, and what are the next three years going to look like going up to 2024 when people believe, you know, elections aren't free and fair? They don't believe even audits of the elections. They don't believe court rulings that say the elections were fair. These people, they're going to think violence is the answer then because they're going to believe their side won no matter what the outcome was. Is there a way out of this? Well, the, the first thing I would say, and actually some Republicans have made these comments over the past weekend, um, especially after Christopher Ray, the FBI director, came out and denounced this. One of the things is they need to wretched back the, re- the rhetoric. There has to be a clear statement, especially on the right, that this kind of talk is unacceptable and that it's un-American. It would be very helpful, although I don't know that it's going to happen, if Republicans would start saying that our elections are free and fair, that they have been free and fair. You know, it would the best would be if Trump would say this, you know, that might be just wildly <laughs> impossible, but that's the kind of thing that would tamp these things down. And, you know, we could get back to the world in which you understand that you may lose on election day, but you live to fight another day, but that's not the mentality right now on the right. 
What about law enforcement? Is there more that could be happening there that might put a lid on this? Or is anything they do likely to further inflame the situation? Well, given that we have talk from some prominent far-right figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene to defund the FBI, I'm not sure. I, I mean, look, the FBI has to be on top of these things and also state and local. This is, you know, there have been all kinds of incidents happening around the country. Like, for example, a man with an AR-15 showed up at a Beto O'Rourke campaign event. We've had protests that have broken out violently among like the Proud Boys in front of drag shows in various parts of the country. There's a lot going on at the state and local level. Law enforcement has to be on top of this. I'm glad they're paying attention to the online space in the wake of this. But the crackdown, for example, after January 6th, legitimate crackdown, arrests of people for breaking the law, did not temper the um, feelings of people on the far right or extremists, right? It's inflamed them. In fact, more Republicans today believe that January 6th was a peaceful protest and thus undeserving of these kinds of arrests than believed it on January 7th, the day after the events happened. So, you know, law enforcement has to keep us safe. They need to keep us safe at the polls, which is a, a big concern that I have. But crackdowns are probably just going to rebound with more anger from the from the far right and from extremists. Are you convinced that law enforcement is collecting the intelligence that it needs from all of this online activity? You'll recall January 6th, the FBI said, oh, we didn't know. We weren't prepared. What do you think about that? Yes, January 6th was a, a gross failure of seeing what was hidden in plain sight, right? I think this is a little different. The fact that the FBI and DHS came out four days after the warrant, warrant was, you know, after mar logo was searched and had all this information about what they were seeing online means that they hopefully learned some lessons from the failures leading up to January 6th. That said, it is, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. You know, there has been a lot of criticism, including from people like me over recent years, that there hadn't been enough attention, enough resources, enough agents targeting right-wing extremism. I, you know, Christopher Ray has testified repeatedly, including during the Trump years, that the number of cases like this have been going up and up, that more resources have been put to that. I, you know, I can't point to any evidence other than his word. And the fact that it seems like recent intelligence bulletins have focused on this area and they might have learned something from January 6th. It would seem to me that potentially these online actors are providing a roadmap to law enforcement that, in fact, with all this self-identification going on, with the unbridled talk of civil war and violence, that it might be a tool that could be leveraged. Oh, I think it is. I think it's intelligence, right? That it is a tool that can be leveraged. It's major intelligence. Saying this stuff so openly is in a way shocking. You know, I think back to 20 years ago when neo-Nazis would hide, you know, they this kind of talk would only happen in, you know, William Pierce's compound for the National Alliance in West Virginia. This isn't something you would blatantly put on the internet. So it does make it a little bit easier for law enforcement to look at all of this and follow and track these trends. The sheer volume of it, I'm sure, is a challenge. And of course, even for people like me, you, you know, you can see people saying the exact same things, exact, you know, for example, the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. And then one person will decide to shoot up an El Paso Walmart or a synagogue in Pittsburgh who believes this stuff. 
And a whole bunch of other people are reading it and spouting it and saying it and, and don't do anything. So it's complicated, right? When does the talk spill into real life? When do you have to be worried? And I think that the FBI and the DOJ is becoming a little less cautious about concerning themselves with that. And the reason I say that is this actually this arrest in Pennsylvania where the guy said he was going to shoot agents. Um, that shows that maybe they're willing to test the waters a little bit. The other thing about this is the courts haven't given us very much clarity on what constitutes a true threat in the online space. You know, and, and that makes this all tricky for federal law enforcement, really all law enforcement to deal with. We don't really know at this point what constitutes a true threat in the way we have an understanding in the real world. That was Heidi Byrich, co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Coming up, what domestic extremists have in common with jihadis. Rita Katz was born in Iraq. After her father was imprisoned and executed by the Saddam Hussein regime, her mother fled to Israel with her children. As an adult, Katz came to the United States. Having been raised in Iraq and Israel, Katz was well acquainted with the threat posed by terrorism, but she says she didn't expect to find it here. Now, with the rise of extremist factions on either end of the political spectrum, she has. Katz is a terrorism analyst and co-founder of the Search International Terrorist Entities Intelligence Group, known as the Site Intelligence Group. In an upcoming book, Saints and Soldiers, Inside Internet Age Terrorism from Syria to the Capital Siege, Katz draws parallels between the right-wing extremists in the U.S. and ISIS. ISIS created a whole new kind of terrorism and recruitment process that in many ways is very similar to the far right. You can see these two movements as extremely different, but they are very similar. They are very similar in recruitment. They are very similar in their goals. They are very similar in uh, carrying out their attacks and they actually also feed each other. But the way that these two movements were treated is very different. These new movements had seen a huge shift in the way that they use the internet. Now, saying the word internet, you can say, oh, Rita, you've said, and everybody have mentioned the word internet so much. Uh, this is not the first time we hear that the internet plays a vital role about about in terrorism and about everything else. But there's a big difference. And the big difference is that today, many of these communities are created on the internet. ISIS could not have gone uh, to where it did and, and creating the caliphate in no time if it didn't utilize the internet the way it did, which I call the culture that you create on the internet, where the ideology doesn't matter anymore. I can tell you, and I'm sure that many of you know that many people joined ISIS, not because of the ideology. They, many of them didn't even know what ISIS stands for, why they're even killing other Muslims, but it was a brand. It was a cool thing. It was attracting people for the elements 
that community, the current community, the young people were looking for. What are the weaknesses that occur right now in the society? What is the society lacking that we can uh, work on in order to recruit these people? And both communities worked and recruited on the same basis. ISIS, for instance, I give the examples of working on the element of feminism, uh, where calling a lot of the people from young people from the West on the element of, you know, you join the caliphate and you can have four women. You have six women, you have, you have sex slaves, you can marry four women. You don't have to try to chase women and work very hard to find one that will agree to be with you. Just join us. And literally with pictures of men with four women surrounding them, it's not about ideology. And the far right, especially with what we are seeing in the last decade, many of the, much of their uh, ideology, I wouldn't call it ideology, much of their rhetoric is focused on the, uh, the feminist movement and how they, for them, it's something that is taking away a lot of the rights of the man in the, as, as they know. So there is a lot of similarities between the two movements. Um, and the, the, there is not enough attention that was put into understanding what is leading these communities to thrive in the last decades or the last few years. So what is it? Is it the fact that they've been able, able to tap into these anxieties about feminism for example, or is it because they're exceptionally gifted at creating viral content that spreads widely and is very attractive to certain populations? Great question. So in the past, and I have to start with a short description in order to understand the change and the trend. And you know, I've been involved in counterterrorism for more than 20 years. And when you're involved in, in a field for a long, long time, you can actually see how things change. So when I started my work uh, in counterterrorism, I had to go to places in order to see how people are being recruited. I had to go undercover. I had to attend events and I had to film these events and I had to actually be present and, and document the events and, and see what they are saying to their people. And, and groups were using internet. Hamas was using internet. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the IRA, the Hezbollah were all using the internet but that you were using the internet as part of a real group, a group that has ideology, a group that has goals, a group that has training camps, a group that has location and leaders. When you look today at terrorist organizations, much of that doesn't exist anymore. Much of that is something that is not needed. What you need is a nice graphic. What you need is a meme that will reflect to the young people that are watching your Discord channel or your Telegram account. What you need is not ideology. Look, we look at the movement, for instance, of the QAnon movement. It is one of the largest movements that 
millions of people belong to it. And it's not only in the United States, it's all over the world. This movement that people actually pledged allegiance to Q. No, no one knows who Q is, not only. This is a group that doesn't have a location. This is a group that has no ideology, nothing. It's a group that was created online. It exists online, but from their online incitement and conspiracy theory, it is translated to the physical world that we live in. There are attacks carried out on behalf of the QAnon movement. People are indoctrinated to this QAnon movement, not knowing what it is. You've said a couple of times they don't have ideologies, but they do in a way, don't they? Don't they share hate? Don't they share paranoia? Ideology takes the backseat. It is not what is important anymore. Look, when Osama bin Laden or Zawahiri or other terrorist leaders were talking about what they are fighting for, it was they justified it with ideological reasons. The ideological reasons that the QAnon movement has are extremely different. It's about going after the deep state. It's everyone that is that doesn't fit in the kind of life that they want. And it grows and grows and to the degree that it's a very vague and changing ideology. One day is about vaccine, the next day is about the grooming, and then they, they steal the election and, 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 and anti-vaccine and so on. And now it's the mon monkeypox and, and God knows what's going to be the next thing. But anything that disrupt or they don't like and it affects their life is going to be the next theme of their ideology. There's no specific ideology anymore. Can you explain how people go from seeing a catchy meme online to shooting people? And, and I would add to your question also to say how fast this process can be from seeing memes to the moment that you actually can carry out an attack and change your life completely. And I guess the best way to describe this is the story that I give about uh, John Ernest, who was uh, the mass shooter behind the San Diego synagogue back in April 2019. John Ernest Manifesto was one of the most eye-opening manifestos that I read, I would say, in the last 10 years. John Ernest was a 19-year-old student in nursing school. He had a great future ahead of him. And he says that specifically in his manifesto. But something happened that changed his life. He was an A student. He was on a dean's list in school. And suddenly, he became a mass shooter. His manifesto said a few words that really were an eye-opening for us. He explained, and he says specifically, I was inspired and I was recruited to the movement by the memes I saw, including something like Moon Men, a cartoon character 
but the far right community adapted that it has uh, it can call for the death of Jews it can call for the death of minorities and it's okay because it's not being said by a person and this character as Ernest explained in one of the he wrote the he wrote his manifesto in a way that he's asking himself a question and then he replies to the question he asked himself so what inspired you to carry out these attacks and he says Hitler and he adds also of course uh Tarrant who carried out uh, that Bernd Tarrant who carried out the attack in New Zealand and he mentions Robert Bauer who carried out the attack in uh, on uh, in Pittsburgh on the Tree of Life synagogue but then he says and Moonman so for me, reading a sentence where you put a character, animated character that was created or adapted by the far right to become a, 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 a symbol for the community because it's something that is allowed and enabled to say whatever they want with YouTube channels full with, with Moon Men, that was something that really inspired the community very much and it's not uh it's not anything that you really can understand as he says that until i joined hn and i saw the volume of it and it consumed you and then that point he was 100 percent a product of this community and he said that within six months he realized that he needs to go and carry out the attack because as his other brothers, Tarrant Bowers and others like him, them, that they are called saints in the community have said, there is don't sit and wait for somebody else to do the work for you. You have to go and do it yourself. And he immediately started training and it took him six months from the moment he joined HN to the moment that he carried out the attack. It is. It is a path that once you enter, there is no way out. The amount of hate that you see on these venues is, 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 is there's no way to really describe it. I, I think that the best way I described it in the book is how I lost people in our organization who just couldn't handle the stress of looking at this stuff. Handled the amount of hate that they were seeing to the degree they couldn't sleep at night. It's And so imagine somebody, an, an individual that enters this community, a young, a young person. And we have seen a lot of teenagers. Look, Site Intelligence Group work with government agencies from all over the world. We were threatened by one of these groups, um, Moon Creek Division, another terrorist organization that was created only on the internet. And from the internet, they recruited people on different locations all over the world. And those individuals were ready to start carrying out attacks. And they incited uh, attacks against us personally, me personally. And, and when we started the investigation to identify them, it was heartbreaking to see that many of these individuals were very young at the ages of 14 and 15. And they served as commanders for terrorist organizations that are created online. This is 
this is the new kind of generation, new kind of breed of terrorism that I try to explain in the book and I'm trying to you know, talk about more and more because it shows that there is no one that is immune from this, this kind of terrorism. Anyone who goes online, it consumes you in a way that it just, once it starts, you can't stop it. One of the interesting things you talk about in the book is that ISIS and the far right are actually in sort of a dance with one another and feed off one another to commit more and more outrageous acts. Talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, And I think one of the examples that you could see is after the New Zealand attack. That was an attack carried out by Tarrant in New Zealand against Muslims. Immediately, the jihadi community started issuing threats all over. We could not carry or or monitor or, or, or document the amount of threats that were coming from both sides because the far right as I describe in my book, uh, became a completely different monster, completely different creature. It was a game-changing in the community. It was for them the 9-11 attack for the far-right community. It had everything that they could wish to see in an attack. It had a video. It had a manifesto. Given this situation, what should we be doing? So... This terrorist organization that I describe in the book, the new breed of terrorist organization, is born on the internet, has to be fought on the internet. Killing people, arresting people is all good. And it has been done in the last 20 years. After 9-11, when the United States entered Afghanistan and killed almost everyone, and to date, it didn't kill the movement. This is a movement whether it's the Al-Qaeda, whether it's ISIS, whether it's the far right, is born now on the internet, exists on the internet. The internet is their oxygen, it's their lifeline. And in order to fight it, you have to fight it on the internet. Yes. How do you do that? How do you do that? So some come and say, well, you can't, I describe in my book how there is a lot of resemblance between ISIS and the far right, a lot how they recruit, how they train, how they become uh, very internet savvy and recruit by, by culture, internet culture. But then at one time in the book, I say, if you noticed or not, at this point, I'm not talking about ISIS anymore. I'm talking only about the far right because the far right has the, has the privilege, has the uh, ability to create as many platforms as they want. When ISIS became a real threat to the world, there was a joint consensus by countries, by law enforcement agencies, by IT seed sector, the internet uh, technology, and by groups like us, that the media must be taken down, that ISIS media has to be taken down. And today it's very difficult to find the ISIS media online. It's very difficult. It was pushed to Telegram and Telegram fights ISIS and IQ media. It's constantly channels and groups go down. Now let's talk about the far right. The far right has the privilege of creating, they have the funding 
because it's not a designated terrorist entity. You can't designate the far right as a group. And so they, when there's no designations as a terrorist entity, they can create a website. They can create uh, their own platforms. They can create their own social media. They can fundraise. They can continue to recruit, gather, and do everything that they want to do. But there was a lot of criticism against the government saying, why aren't you designating these entities? Why can't you go and just take down these websites? And, free and speech, free speech. It's free speech. And the free speech is one of the most important principles of this country. There is free speech. So? So the front partner, on this war is the tech companies. They must come on board and they must take a big part because without the internet, that will not exist. But they're reluctant to do it because of the free speech concerns, number one, and two, because sometimes they make a lot of money off this stuff. Yes and no. But here's the solution that I'm suggesting. Every tech company, Every internet server provider requires you to agree to their conditions. And their conditions in all of them, including Amazon, including Cloudflare, which is the company that provides online security to all these websites, they all ask you to uh, agree to their terms and conditions. And their terms or conditions say specifically you are not allowed to incite for violence on our platforms. And their consumers are, have to agree to these conditions. And I'll give you an example. Perfect example happened with um, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, and all these mainstream platforms. When they started taking down far-right communities and started taking down the conspiracy theories about COVID and the vaccine. The problem though was that then they were pushed to other platforms that they created, but no platform can exist without an internet provider. They must have an internet provider that will allow them to operate. So you're saying the inter internet providers are the key that they're the ones have to, who have to deny access to some of these platforms. And look what happened when Amazon took down Perler. Perler went down for a long period. It did come back, but it's nothing like it was before. So are internet providers reluctant to do this because they know they're gonna get incredible political blowback? You know, that's a question that it's sometimes I, try to understand why a company like Cloudflare, which continues to protect 4chan, which is the form that a lot of the latest mass shooters uh, were in indoctrinated and incited uh, and carry and announced about their attacks, continues to support it, but it won't support or won't, uh, won't be protecting ISIS sites. I think that behind it is the idea of, we can do whatever we want. I, I honestly have no answer to that 
Many have asked Cloudflare. In many cases, Cloudflare didn't really provide a response for that. I quoted in my book how Cloudflare says on their website, in one of their sections, we will take down any site that incites for violence. Now you go on Perler, you go on Gab, you go on many of these sites, and it specifically calls for violence. But uh, uh, um, uh, go taking weapon and killing, uh, killing others, and who is not being uh, incited for attacks now? But they're not doing anything. I honestly have no answer to that. But some other websites, some other companies have acted, and those that acted against ISIS tried to upload ISIS website online. It's going to be taken down immediately. So what about the government side? We've talked about tech companies and their responsibility. Should government be doing something different or something new or something more to try and control these these internet uh, terrorist groups? For in order to control the internet, it's there is something that exists in Europe, and that is internet referral units. And it worked really well with ISIS, and it works also for the far right in, in some degree. And those internet referral units work just like there is a group that, for instance, uh, uh, has to um, be overseeing Wall Street and making sure that anything is legit being done in a legitimate way. Uh, there is the same thing when it comes to the internet, but when it comes to the freedom of speech, in Europe, it worked. You have the internet referral unit. If something was said and it's not, it's not supported by the rules in Europe, it will be taken down. In the United States, it doesn't exist. And that's why many of the far right websites are actually hosted in the United States and protected by United States uh, technology, uh, technolo uh, tech sector. Let's talk about government. For the government to act and in order to start creating a whole new sets of laws, that will always involve in these issues, the freedom of speech will never happen. But I think that it's really not needed. The system, the government system of creating this technique that websites and internet companies can't and not allowed to host whatever they want. Like look at the case of the child pornography. What happened then, it was stopped because it was there was a collaboration between the ICT sector, private sector, and government agencies all together. And that's what you need here. You need a more collaboration right now from the internet sector, the technology sector, because the process already exists. If they will only implement their rules and their conditions, for their websites, for the, the service that they provide, the problem will diminish pretty much because this is a network that is created online, can be killed online. Rita Katz is a co-founder of the Site Intelligence Group and author of the book, Saints and Soldiers, Inside Internet Age Terrorism from Syria to the Capital Siege. It will be out this fall. While she was with us, Katz shared her thoughts on the American assassination of Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. Look, Al-Qaeda is a resilient movement. Many of its leaders have already been killed. 
it was important to kill him. It was important for many reasons. He was one of the most important architects of the 9-11 and other attacks. Zawahiri, though, in, in the last decade, since he became the successor of Osama bin Laden, didn't play a role of a military leader. He played a role of more ideologist as a father of the movement, as, as somebody who tries to uh, teach the community the principle of what will lead the community to the real caliphate. And he was very much known as the person who led to the separation and that brought uh, ISIS to life. But the role he played was as ideologist really didn't have an effect in the military sense on the offshoots of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's offshoots from Somalia, the Shabab, from Jenin in the Islamic Maghreb in the Sahal area, to the AQAP Al-Qaeda in Yemen pretty much, and other support networks in Kashmir and others continue to exist and will continue to exist even after his death. The big question will be who's going to be the successor because the successor is going to be the individual who will, might uh, take Al-Qaeda to a different direction. And so it depends who the successor is going to be. If, who are the top candidates in your mind? So the two candidates that I consider to be the most prominent names to to be the successor of, of Zawahiri is either Abdurrahman al-Maghrabi or Saif al-Adil. Both of them are most wanted by the FBI, but they're very, very different. Saif al-Adil, many of, many of the people know, he has been one of the most in, in the important individuals behind most of the AQ attacks. Um, he has been critical in the USS call. He was critical in the 9-11 attack. He was, he is the head, he served as, as the one expert in intelligence collection, in execution of attack. He is the military person. And Al-Maghrabi, Abdurrahman Al-Maghrabi is the head of the ISIS media, uh, the Al-Qaeda media. He is behind everything that Al-Qaeda media known as a Sahab has been producing. And so if Saif al-Adol is going to become the next successor, it might very much change the Al-Qaeda offshoots and Al-Qaeda in general to become a more geared toward military. And it might still happen that Al-Qaeda itself will not carry out attacks as long as they are in Afghanistan, maybe. But what will happen is that the offshoots, Al-Qaeda's branches in Somalia, in, 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 in Yemen, in, in Kashmir, in, in other places like Mali and Algeria, might start reaching out to Saif al-Adil, to the new leader of Al-Qaeda for advice, for suggestion, for consultation. And it will create a more bond and more direct connection between Al-Qaeda central command and the branches. And that theoretically will make Al-Qaeda more deadly. 
that will make Al-Qaeda likely more deadly. At the same time, though, if, if Abdurrahman will be the leader, and it might continue to serve as more ideological group, a brand, if you wish, uh, that will continue holding the community together. But there's, there's a third possibility. And the third possibility will be adapting what ISIS has done for a long time. And that is to have a new leader, but not really revealing his true identity. So for instance, who's this Baghdad? Who, who was the successor of Baghdadi? Nobody knew. Who was the successor even after Zarqawi? There were several successors that nobody knew who they are, adapting a, 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 a new name for these individuals and keeping the identity uh, secret when the online, um, when the jihadi community, Al-Qaeda supporters will know that it, why it's being done and how it's being done. And it works with ISIS, it will work with Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda threat, especially with the training, I mean, with being able to have the base in Afghanistan is a, is a threat that is going to grow. And I don't see it diminishing anytime soon. It's a very resilient movement, sadly. That was Rita Katz of the Site Intelligence Group. We'll be back again next week with another episode of Spy Talk. In the meantime, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jean Meserve. Jeff Stein is at Spy Talker. We'll talk soon. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.